It's great to see you again this morning. Uh, it was great going around the uh, house churches this week. Sally and I are pounding out the miles around the Dayton area. We still have no idea where we're going from one place to the next. But um, maybe over the next few weeks we will get to know. We, we kind of drive around and we say, I'm sure we've been here once before. It's, it's, kind of, it's, it's a kind of an odd deja vu kind of feeling at the moment. But eventually we'll get, we'll get used to it. But the, um, the house churches are fantastic. And um, if you've still not um, experienced the joy that there is in engaging with one of these remarkable communities here at Apex, then I can only encourage you just to have a go. It's, it really is fantastic. We've not gone to a single house church that we wouldn't want to join. And um, I think that's, that's saying something, considering that we've been to two a night for I don't know how many weeks now. And uh, by Easter, we'll have got round all of them. And there's a lot of them. So we'll see. We'll see if I come back with the same report every week. But, uh, <laughs> but right now, that's the report. On Friday night, Sabina and her team uh, did us a great service. She put on with her team an amazing celebration dinner for the elders, the staff, and uh, for Sally and myself. Sally's in uh, Children's Church today, uh, just seeing what's going on. Uh, and uh, we had the most amazing time on Friday. The decor in the room was amazing. The meal, I mean, we had, I don't know, six or seven courses. Is that right? I mean, it was incredible. I said to Sally as we drove home, it is undoubtedly the finest church meal I've ever had. And you know, we've had some pretty sketchy ones over the years, so you know, the comparison, the comparison is really quite amazing. So thanks to Sabina and the team. Now over these last uh, few weeks, I've been attempting to bring to you an introduction of the two great themes of Scripture. The two great themes of scripture that speak about relationship and responsibility, covenant and kingdom. And over these last few weeks, we've been looking principally at covenant, and we've noted that the covenant that God has established with us is a covenant that he takes the initiative in, he creates the relationship, and in creating that relationship, he creates the basis for us to be one with him and on the basis of that oneness with him, be one with one another. We noted, I think with some excitement, every time we look at these passages together, surely there's an excitement that rises when we look at passages that tell us that our new identity is not an old identity of sin and lostness, but a new identity of sonship and the sovereign hand of grace upon us. Sonship, not because this is a gender-specific thing, but because Jesus is the Son of God and we have a relationship with the Father through the Son and so our identity is the Son and so all women who come to know Jesus have to get used to being called sons of God and all the guys have to get used to being the bride of Christ. It's the way it is. It's not a gender thing. It's just a covenant thing. And so 
So we've looked at that a little bit and then we asked ourselves this question, if this identity that gives us this sense of confidence, this security, that leads to a great sense of authority, because after all, if we're the children of the king, then of course we represent him as the king. It is our responsibility to do so. And so with that responsibility, of course, comes remarkable authority. But the fact is that many days we go through the day without sensing or without connecting with that deep sense of assurance, that deep sense of authority. And so we looked somewhat at this question, how can we benefit from the new identity? And we looked together at how it was that the, the small incidences in our lives, the little deaths, the little deaths of the trials and the, and the struggles and the difficulties give us an opportunity to say no to our natural instincts to protect ourselves, to preserve ourselves, to be self-centered. And in choosing that little death, have the opportunity to embrace the greater life that is in Christ Jesus. The, um, the passage that we looked at to kind of get us started was this remarkable one here in Romans. It's an amazing, amazing passage. I'm not sure I'll ever tire of reading these verses as long as I live. Maybe not for all eternity. Look what it says. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you again a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in the sufferings, in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Co-heirs with Christ. What is it that Christ inherits as he ascends into heaven? He inherits the universe. It will take us for all eternity to come to terms with what it is that Christ has done by dying in our place, by rising again, and by inviting us to share his identity. In that sharing of his identity, he has made us co-heirs with him. And of course, we spend each day seeking to live that out. Now, if we're going to move on from there, we have to get into this idea of what it means to step into that reality. Jesus, to his first disciples, said this. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, will save it. So we, we take up this idea that our life as children of God, 
this side of glory is about life and death. It's about choosing to embrace the circumstances that invite us to die to our old nature. And in doing that, embrace the new life that Jesus offers us now that will be fulfilled and fully consummated on his return. But the question that I have for us today is what ways do we need to function? What, what practical steps can you and I take so that we live this kind of life? Clearly, this is what the scriptures say. Clearly, this is what Jesus intends, that we live this life of both death and life. But how do we do it? What are the practical steps that we can take today and forward into this week? Well, I want to talk with you using a biblical illustration, an illustration from the Old Testament, the life of a man called Elijah, someone that all of us have heard of and that perhaps all of us have studied. First Kings tells us the story of this remarkable man who becomes the symbol of all of the prophetic witness of the Old Testament scriptures. When Jesus is transfigured before his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and they see a glimpse of his transcendent glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is Elijah and Moses that Jesus is speaking with, the symbol of the prophets and the law. Elijah is this amazing character. Elijah prophesies to Israel that there's going to be a drought and it's not going to stop until the Lord tells him to prophesy that the drought is to finish. The drought goes on for three and a half years. The brook that he is camping by dries up. The ravens that are feeding him are no longer available and so off he goes and he finds a widow outside of the land of Israel in a, in a little community called Zarephath. The widow is, is gathering sticks for a fire. She has a handful of wheat and a small, a small quantity of oil. She's going to make the last piece of bread and her son, her small baby son and her will eat their last meal and then die. She has no expectations of the future. Elijah says to her, if you'll share your meal with me, you will be in plenty throughout all of the drought. And so she does, and sure enough, provision is given to them by the Lord. And then a terrible thing happens. The little boy dies. It's such a shock to the woman that she, she can't stop herself from blaming Elijah. The natural thing to do when you're in the midst of loss is to look for a reason why it is that you feel so angry and so afraid. She blames Elijah. Elijah throws himself upon the young boy and prays for him and life returns to him and he's raised from the dead. 
And so the story continues. He bids farewell to the widow and her son and goes for the great confrontation. Ahab has been met. Jezebel has been summoned. It will be on Mount Carmel that the final showdown will take place. The prophets of Baal will, com- will confront the prophet of the Lord, Elijah. The prophets of Baal agree to the contest, which is if their God Baal, who is considered by them to be the God of thunder and lightning, is the God of thunder and lightning, then he will send fire upon their sacrifice at their request. And so they spend the whole morning and into the afternoon screaming and shouting and whirling around, cutting themselves with swords and spears, but nothing happens. Elijah rebuilds the temple, rebuilds the altar of the Lord, lays the wood on the altar, sacrifices the bull on the altar and has the altar soaked, saturated with water three times and then simply makes the request. Send fire, Lord. The fire falls. The sacrifice is consumed. The people are knocked to the ground and everyone recognizes that God is the Lord and the God of Elijah is the Lord of the people. Elijah bows to the ground, having dealt with the prophets of Baal, he bows to the ground and asks his assistant, tell me when you see any cloud. Seven times he prays. Eventually, rising from the waters of the Mediterranean, a cloud the size of a man's hand is seen. And Elijah says to Ahab, you better get in your chariot because I hear the sound of rain. Well, obviously this guy's awesome. You know, by any measure, he's awesome. But the odd thing is that in all of his awesomeness, he's very human. And he's afraid for his life. Because the wife of Ahab, Jezebel, says, you tell that Elijah that what he did to those prophets of Baal, I'm going to do to him. And so he runs away. And he runs into the desert and finds himself underneath a broom tree, desperate, depressed, and alone. The Lord sends him an angel to take care of him. He's strengthened for his journey because he wants to go to the mountain of the Lord where God had met Moses. And he makes his way to the mountain of the Lord and he calls upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord's response to Elijah is, what are you doing here? This is kind of a bit confusing, I'm sure, for Elijah. You know, he's gone through all of this terrible privation of of marching through the wilderness like the people of old. What are, you, what are you doing here, Elijah? Well, I'm the only one left, Lord, and they've killed all of the prophets and there is, there's no one else standing except me. And the Lord says, 
I think you need to step outside. I'll, I'll show you something. So he steps outside, covers himself in his cloak, and the Lord sends a mighty wind. Water will be an erosive element in the desert, but the principal erosive element is the wind. If ever you've been in a desert, I lived in the desert for several years, if ever you've been in a desert, you'll know the continuous presence of the wind stripping away the surface of the earth. And this mighty wind stripped away the rocks and broke them in pieces. But the Lord was not in the wind. Then the Lord sent an earthquake that shattered the rocks and, and shook the mountain to its foundations, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then the Lord sent fire on the mountain. It consumed everything that could be consumed, but the Lord was not in the fire. In the Hebrew, it's very hard to translate what happens next. Because after the fire, it says something like this. There was a low murmur in the thin silence. There was a low murmur in the thin silence. God was not in the drought that stripped away the life of Elijah and the life of the people. He was below it. He was under it. He was a low murmur in the thin silence. And if people would turn their ear toward him, they would hear him. God was not in the earthquake of the boy dying. This terrible upheaval that shook the widow to her very foundations and Elijah with her. God was not in that death. He was under it, speaking. A low murmur in the thin silence. God wasn't even in the fire that fell and that consumed the sacrifice. He was under it. He was that low murmur in the thin silence. You see, there are all kinds of things that you and I will encounter in our lives. And the landscape of our life will look very similar to that of Elijah. You know, if you just did a cross-section of the landscape of our life, it would look something like Elijah's life with the occasional eruption, the stripping away of erosion, The shaking of the earthquake. 
Well, I mean, everybody knows that it's the presence of the Lord that's breaking out when there's fire on the mountain. What is below the surface has now come to the surface and has, and has bubbled up. You know what that's like, don't you? You remember those eruptive moments in your life as a believer? Maybe that time when you were at camp. Maybe that time when you led the first person to the Lord. Maybe that time when your, when your child came to know Jesus Maybe the time when you came to know the Lord and you were so filled with his presence and joy that it was like the overflowing of a, of a volcano in your life. It was an eruption. You see, as believers, we know that God lives within us And God will be with us in all of the circumstances we face. It may not be that God is in the circumstance, but he's present with us in the midst of it. He's below it. He's, he's, a, he's a low murmur in the thin silence of your heart. Maybe like Elijah, you know what it's like for your life to be stripped away little by little by the continuous abrasive forces of life. The people at work, the people at college, the, the people around you, the, the circumstances that you face, the difficulties, the trials, the struggles, the lack of money, the lack of resources, the, the lack of opportunity. You feel as though you're being stripped away by it. those erosive elements. They're a terrible thing. But isn't it amazing that in the midst of those times, you encounter God? Isn't that remarkable? It's as though we're being cut into by these erosive elements and there is the presence of God emerging in the midst. Maybe, like me, I've talked about this before, loss in our family, death in our family, tragedy. Maybe you've known those tragedies. Maybe you've known those losses, those, those deaths in your family. And maybe it's hit you like it hit me, like an earthquake. And in the shaking, you're, you're suffering the same things that all human beings suffer. You, you have these emotions that are looking for a reason to be there. You, you feel guilty, but you don't know why. You feel angry, but you can't find any reason why you're angry. They're looking for a reason to be there, these emotions. And yet, in the midst of these upheavals, it's as though the fault lines that have been exposed become the conduit of God's presence leaking into our experience. Have you noticed that? It's an amazing thing. In the midst of the loss, you have this unaccountable experience of peace. In the midst of the pain, you have this unaccountable experience of joy 
And you're not even sure that you feel right about expressing it because, I mean, is it just because you're bonkers? But it's like we said last week. God says to you and to me, as he did to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is revealed, is made perfect in your weakness. It becomes the conduit of God's presence. And so the way that we embrace the little deaths and find the life is by engaging with life in the way that anybody should. We don't run away from life. We don't run away from the circumstances that we face. We embrace all the circumstances. James says, count it all joy. We, we embrace all of the circumstances to do two things in our life. One is to remove from us the tendency, the addiction of self-preservation and self-centeredness. And at the same time, embrace the life that we find flowing in the midst of these circumstances in unexpected ways. It's an incredible thing. You see, what we're called to do is to excavate. We're called to excavate. The Lord said to Elijah, Elijah, you're a good lad. You've done well. But um, you're not the only one. I've got lots of people preserved. I need you to go and reproduce yourself. Go, go and get Elisha and Jehu and go, and go and make some disciples and, and then you can complete your task. But it's not complete yet. And so off Elijah went. The Lord gave him simple things to do to continue in his presence. There are simple disciplines that you and I know all about. We come to church on Sundays, why? Because it's a simple discipline that reconnects us with the presence of God that's always within us. And what is resident starts to become evident. And you're in the midst of the worship and you think to yourself, I love this, the Lord's here. Well, he's not in this building any more than he's in the building next door. He's in you. And he's leaking out. And because you're surrounded by other people who happen to be leaking too, it starts to feel more like a, more like a pool than a shower. And you think, this is great. And then you remember the discipline of reading your Bible. And you find that the regular discipline of reading your Bible causes you to live 
with the knowledge of God's voice speaking to you deep in your being with that low murmur. And you respond in prayer and and you take on the simple disciplines, not disciplines, we'll talk about this next week, not disciplines that, that get you bound in some kind of formalism or legalism, but the disciplines that are consistent with your identity. This is who you are after all. You of course are going to talk to your father often and regularly. Of course you're gonna listen to his voice as often as you can. Of course you're gonna get together with the family as often as you can. Of course you're gonna be in a house church because it's great being with a family like this but it's sometimes better being with a family where you can actually talk to one another. And so you take on these disciplines and in taking on those disciplines, you're digging a well. You're excavating. Because you've encountered God in the eruption, you've encountered God in the erosion, you've encountered God in the earthquake and so it's worth digging. Every experience says, dig. Because you know that what you'll find is his presence below the surface. So dig and keep on digging. But what about the kind of everyday approach to this? What about when you know, there's not a service on or the house church isn't meeting? What about the days when you're just driving around or you're at work and you, know, you can't remember your Bible verse from yesterday? And You know what I mean? It's like everyday, kind of normal day. How, how do you... How do you engage in this life every day? Well, Paul was really, really committed to training the early disciples in this because, of course, in those days, nobody had a Bible that they could carry around with them. They were like scrolls that you'd have to carry around in like a dumpster if you wanted the whole Bible. And if you wanted all of them, you'd have to pay like a million dollars. So nobody could do that. And, you know, the New Testament was only being written, so, you know. So there's nobody walking around with a pocket Bible in those days. So they, so they learned the stories of Jesus. They, they memorized the sayings of Jesus. They, they sang about the stories of Jesus. And, and they remembered the things that the apostles had circulated around the churches. But Paul wanted them to know how to walk with the Spirit. How do you walk with the Spirit? You see, when, um, when Paul was writing his first letter, the Galatians, there, were, there was a, bit, a big problem in the church or the churches that he was writing to. And he wanted them to get away from the legalism of formalism that they were being offered by other people. And he wanted them to understand that they could every day walk with the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5 and and verse 16, it says this. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify 
the desires of the sinful nature. The word live there is the word in Greek peripatetai, which means to walk. In the old translations, uh, English translations of the Bible, it's got the word walk. In the Old Testament, the great leaders, the great saints, the great heroes of the faith were those who walked with God. In the Gospels, walking with God was following Jesus. In the epistles, walking with God, following Jesus, was walking, was walking by the Spirit. Jesus said, he's with you now, he will be within you. I'm sending you another one just like me, another counselor, another mentor, another, the word is parakletos, one who will speak to you on the journey as you go. So how does that happen? Well, Paul goes on to say in the same chapter, verse 22, he says, um, he says, the fruit of the Spirit, so as you're walking with the Spirit, as you're walking with him, he lives within you, you're walking with him, the manifestation of his presence is that you begin to notice that you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. There. They're evidential marks. You're not supposed to wear these things as medals. They're supposed to be marks of the Spirit, manifestations of the Spirit. So you're walking with the Spirit, and there's manifestations of of these realities in your life. And Paul says, as you're walking, seeing the manifestation of these things, they're concrete realities. There's a difference between peace and no peace. There's a difference between a lot of peace and not a lot of peace. They're not just binary ideas, but there's a, there's a sense of these things are realities that can grow in our lives. And so the way that the Spirit will often be working in you, and we'll look at the, the scripture in, on this in a moment, is that he will just withdraw from you just a little bit of that peace and you go, Oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? Withdraw from you that little bit of joy. I mean, joy and peace are the, pretty much the same thing. An old Scottish divine said, said uh, when, when joy sits doon, you call it peace. And when peace rises up to dance, you call it joy. It's the presence of the Lord within you. Peace and joy is the presence of the Lord within you. And the way that Paul puts it in Colossians 3.15 is, is he says this. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. In the letter to the Colossians, he's dealing with problems in the church, issues with kind of aggravation in the church, a kind of thing I'm sure you've never encountered. And he says there's, 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 there's a gift that you all have, and it's peace. Now the problem with this verse here, as sometimes we encounter, 
is that the, the translators of the New Testament find it difficult to kind of put the word picture into English in a way that really works. And it may be that they're so academic that they don't live the life that you and I live. I don't know. Because the word there, brabeno, translated as, as rule, brabeno, we get barometer from it. The word brabeno is referee. Referee. Now what do you do when the referee blows his whistle? Anybody? Stop. Okay. Now you know why Paul used that word. You see, peace within you is the manifestation of God's presence. Joy within you is the manifestation of God's presence. Love within you is the manifestation of God's presence. And Paul's saying, look, let's just take, let's just take a portion of that fruit. Let's just take one, one example of that manifestation and let's just understand that what God will do within you is function like a referee and when he withdraws that manifestation, it will feel like a whistle blowing in your heart. And you're supposed to stop. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop thinking what you're thinking. Stop being grumpy about what you're being grumpy about. The referee in our hearts is teaching us how to walk with him. Isn't that great? Isn't that marvelous? I mean, again, I look at you and I wonder, is there a pulse? Are you alive? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is this important to you? This is really, really significant. It's amazing. God has given you the gift of himself within you and he's not just left it at that. He's operating as a referee within you so that you can actually walk with him. Don't you think that's amazing? It's absolutely stunning. It's like driving down a street, not knowing what the speed limit is, and then hitting a speed bump. Yeah? You, everybody's done that, haven't they? And you go, whoa, did I just run over a puppy, or was that a speed bump, or what was that? And then you look up and you think, oh yeah, that's right, yeah. Now maybe you're a bit like me. See, because you, you can go two ways. You can kind of go the flesh way or the spirit way. The spirit way is, I hit a speed bump, the referee's blowing a whistle, I need to slow down minimum. Or you could do the thing that I like doing, which is, thinking about how fast you could go so that you wouldn't feel the next one. Yeah? You ever, you, ever, you ever speculated about that? How fast you need to be going so that you don't actually feel it. It's about 50. <laughs> Ruins your car, but you don't feel it. Now... I think everybody in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about here. The spirit blows the whistle. It's like a speed bump and you go, 
okay, got it. Now you might ignore it the first time and then you, the, the speed bump's a bit higher the next time. You know, your, your wife, your husband, your kid, you know, they, they, they start to give you messages that say, you're, you're, you're kind of running in the wrong direction here. So other people around you, the Spirit starts using all kinds of different ways to communicate to you. You're, you're on the wrong, what are you doing? Then the speed bump gets a bit higher. Eventually it's a low wall. Now, if we will be sensitive to the Spirit, then it will be like we're, we're walking in step with the Spirit. I don't know whether you can go back to that, that little slide there. It's like keeping step with the Spirit. See that? That's what it's like. And that's what this covenant relationship is supposed to be like. That we walk with God and that by his spirit within us, we have a sense of how he's leading us. And it's not that we're just becoming feeling-orientated Christians that don't have any sense. It's that we become naturally supernatural Christians, learning how to walk with God. Naturally supernatural Christians, walking with God. I, I had a speed bump on Friday. You may have noticed that I've got a blemish on my normally unblemished skin. <laughs> and uh, I got it on Friday. Uh, Sally and I, on a Friday, we, we spend a day together on Friday, have a day off together, and we start the day by cleaning the house. And I clean the upstairs, and Sally cleans the downstairs. And so I'm at the, towards the end of the cleaning episode, and I went to the linen cupboard to get the, to get the towels for restocking the bathroom. And, and as I, I got into the linen cupboard, I sneezed. And I, it was a big sneeze. <laughs> and I didn't sneeze into the towel because I thought, uh, there's something that just ran through my mind. I thought, I don't think I should in, sneeze into the towel. Because <laughs> then we'd have to have another towel. Because, you know, you never know what's coming out when you sneeze. You know. And, and so I, I kind of went like that and sneezed into the frame of the door. <laughs> just short of knocking myself out. And I kind of... And I, I put the towels in the bathroom. I went downstairs and suddenly went, whoa, what have you done? Because there's blood's pouring out of my head. And I said, do you think it's the spirit saying that I shouldn't clean anymore? <laughs> and Sally said, no. It's nothing to do with that at all. So you, you, might, you might, you know, find yourself having to have those little conversations from time to time. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is a dynamic reality. Following Jesus and walking with the Spirit is supposed to be a daily, joyful, dynamic reality where we're learning to walk in step with him. We're listening for the referee's whistle. We're looking out for the speed bumps. And we're learning to live the naturally supernatural life. Amen? Okay then, let's do this today. The, the band are gonna come up and just uh, close out our time. And of course, at the end of the service, there'll be a prayer team to pray with anyone who wants to pray. But right now, if this last week you hit a speed bump of any kind, like me, then stand up, 
right where you are and we'll just pray together at the end of our time together this morning. So just stand up if you've hit a speed bump this week and um, we'll pray together as we do that. Some of you are sitting down are going to be hitting slightly larger speed bumps. Because <laughs> obviously you didn't spot them. But, um, but that's fine, that's fine. We'll be praying about it again next week. Let's, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you that you give us peace and joy and love and all of the fruit of the Spirit as a manifestation of your presence within us and as a marker of how you're guiding and leading us. Lord, thank you that you've not called us to follow and then left us in silence. Thank you, Lord, that in the thin silence there is a low murmur, a gentle whisper, a still small voice that addresses us as children. And so this day, Lord, we respond as children and we say, Daddy, Father, we want to follow Jesus. We want to walk with the Spirit this day and throughout this week. And we pray, Lord, that we would be encouragements to others seeking to do the same because we ask it in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say,